This week on Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about shopper marketing. We'll be talking about how the consumer journey has become increasingly complicated in a post-pandemic economy. We'll give you some great examples and insights as to what brands need to do in an omni-channel world and how consumer expectations are higher than they've ever been before and best experience wins. So join us to talk about shopper marketing on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. I'm delighted to be joined by Sharon Urell Lawler, a strategic retail and shopper consultant and founder of Think Plan Do Consulting. Um, we're going to discuss how brands can adapt for retail success in the post-COVID world by serving up better shopper experiences. Sharon is joined today by Claire Cogan, a behavioral scientist and founder of BehaviorWise. So first and foremost, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Welcome. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Uh, Sharon, before we start, how's business? How's uh, life? Are you back in the office or are you still working remotely? hybrid blended I think that's what we're all um sort of working towards but good yeah things are really getting back to normal now and obviously from a shopper perspective I'm out there looking to see what's going on and uh, understanding the the new world as we live in it very good yeah Claire how about you you back in the office is business good did it quieten down a bit during COVID are we okay Uh, Well, do you know what? It's been fascinating because it's all been about behaviour when you think about it. You Mm. know, the last 18 months has just been the biggest interruption to our normal lives. And we've managed to navigate it pretty well overall, I think, because we were able to adopt our behaviour. So things are getting busy now, which is great. Yeah, great. Right. So thanks for joining me. We're going to kick off. And this is an interesting one because I think, look, COVID affected everybody and everything. But I think shopping behaviours and consumer journeys and the way we do things changed quite dramatically. So we're going to talk, cover quite a lot. Hopefully we get through it all. But I'm going to kick off. Um, Sharon, you wrote an article. It's in it's in the Irish Times today about how the pandemic, basically how it's affected, you know, shopping behaviours and how it will, what will remain and what will last. And you opened by saying, uh, it, the post-pandemic shopper is going to expect a true omni-channel alignment on their purchase journey. So I'm going to kick off with the super take question here. What's the difference between omni-channel and multi-channel? That's a great kickoff question, Dave. So th- there's multiple channels which brands can use to communicate to consumers and shoppers. So, you know, you think about TV, radio, outdoor online, email, e- email SMS, and, and obviously the social media platforms which have exploded in the last number of months. And brands can choose to interact with consumers quite independently at each of these touch points. However, if you've got an an omni-channel approach, uh, that approach looks at the touch points and chooses a much more integrated approach, looking at getting the different channels to work together to ultimately guide and nudge the consumer and shopper along that path to purchase. And a good omni-channel approach is always working to move the consumer along their purchase journey And different channels may have different roles to play in this process. So, for example, outdoor and TV might be great to drive awareness for a product. Social media platforms and a business's website can play a key role in sort of inspiring and educating and moving the consumer from interest and desire right through to action. I love personally outdoor digital media advertising, for example, on entrance to the store. That's great for driving conversion because it's close mm-hmm. to point of purchase. And really the best shopper journey is one that utilizes the channels in a way that they play their role in this process effectively in that omni-channel um, format. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now I got that now because one of those things that you, you hear, I remember when I heard it first time, omni-channel saying, what's, what, what's the difference between that and multi-channel? So I, I, I get it, but I just thought we'd start there. Um, when we think about retail generally, like 
you know, channels change, new sites, new behaviors. I know we've been thinking of like, we're far more comfortable now. We, I mean, we weren't comfortable spending, buying certain things online. And we've certainly, you know, mobile commerce was, we were a bit slow to be comfortable with that. But we are, we're comfortable with all these things now. And so channels change and, and the way we do things change. But actually the basic strategic principles of marketing don't change. And your article points out that delivering experience is really important, but brands have always been in the business of delivering experience. So Sharon, the question I have here is, has anything really changed? And if so, what has changed? Yeah, so like as I said, Dave, in the article, brand objective is always, starting point is understand your target customers, understand their needs, their problems, their desires, and deliver relevant solutions. And that hasn't changed at all. Brands have always needed to ensure that they provide standout consumer and shopper experiences as they deliver solutions. What has changed, however, though, is that our expectations have grown around what a good experience is. And I believe that technology has really now raised the bar. So many people would have said to me during lockdown that they tried doing their grocery shopping, for example, online mm. during COVID. And if you think back to those early days in March, you could see retailers themselves were struggling with demand. But as people, as retailers began to invest in improving the experience, so, you know, more products to avail available to order online, the ability to navigate websites, uh, reliable delivery, things like that, shoppers really began to reappraise the e-commerce experience. And with the wider introduction of retail services, things like click and collect, faster home delivery, people got used to new shopping habits and rituals mm. and became much less fearful of these types of services. The other thing I'd say is I also think during lockdown, many businesses, they really upped their game. Because of the pandemic, brands and retailers, they had to adapt, adapt. And, you know, when stores closed, brands and retailers got very inventive in storytelling themselves. Mm -hmm. Things like creating video content to help sell products online. Um, you know, when you had to replace the sales assistant who you go into a store to get help from. Instead, retailers were providing show and tell videos and demos. So again, we now have a much higher expectation of what brands and retailers can actually do to inspire and entertain us post-pandemic. Yeah, yeah, great point. And, and Claire, thinking about those, you know, high expectations and, and the things that retailers can do, behavioural science can help us here, can't it, in terms of help with brands and retailers, help them think about and deliver those experiences. Can you touch on that? Absolutely. So... Well, behavioural science is really all about why people behave the way they do and what we can do to influence that behaviour or to change it. So if you think about it, there are lots of ways the science can help us understand why shoppers behave the way they do and how we can influence that. But one example I really like in terms of experiences is what we call the peak end rule. And uh, this basically is all about how the brain forms experience, memories of experiences um, so if you think about it, it would be really hard for the brain to remember every aspect of an experience. So what it tends to do is focus in on two areas. One is the, the peak or the highlight, and then the other is how the experience ends. And it packages all of that up and that becomes the memory of that experience. So if you want to create a really memorable shopper experience that will differentiate you from competitors, then you need to do two things. You need to create a highlight of some kind, and then you need to make sure that the experience ends on a high. Um, mm. And if you do that, you're basically tapping into the machinery of the brain. And it's really important for business because ultimately people will often make decisions based on memories of past experiences. Yeah. You know, so the, the repeat business side of it is really important. So yeah. creating good memories for people will bring them back. Right. So I'm a like I, I'm the type of person that I like 
EGs examples I get. And I heard the, the, yeah. the peak end rule before. Can you give me a couple of practical examples of what you mean by that, just so I get it? So like examples of what a company or brand could do to illustrate that for people listening. Yeah, certainly. So one of my favorite examples is if you think about having a nice meal in a restaurant, um, and it's something, of course, a lot of us missed uh, during the pandemic, the highlight might be a particularly impressive dish or a great presentation. So imagine the waiter comes out and there's a, a flambe main dish and it's mm-hmm. all very theatrical and dramatic. So that might be the highlight. And then at the end of the meal, to top it all off, you might be offered a liqueur on the house and that right. puts you in good form. And and so you will remember that meal and that restaurant very fondly. And that's classic peak end at work. Okay. And it works because you'll, you'll probably go back to that restaurant. So if you think about a retail context, you know, there are lots of ways you can create a highlight. It could be about the product. It could be about how it's packaged. It could be about the staff. Um, and certainly it's very important to remember that at the end of the experience or the transaction, that you add a little something to make it end on a high. That could be offering somebody a voucher to return or a free gift or some little surprise that uh, that leaves them with a positive memory. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about how we how we design experiences. I like that. And it's practical examples that people can think about. Um, the consumer journey, I know this, the consumer journey has become incredibly complicated. Like There's so many touch points in, a, in any category or, or anything that we talk about. There's so many categories and touch points that can influence a consumer. Um, and I think, and we talked about this earlier on, Sharon, we just mentioned it earlier on, yep. the area of commerce. Brands have gotten so much better at it. So the, the idea of and we talk to clients about this all the time, the removal of friction from the for the users, they kind of go between different platforms and different experiences. And we're, we're always, and certainly in, in, when we talk to clients, we're always looking for ways to make sure that clients show up when people are looking for them online, that they're easily discoverable, instantly shoppable. So I, it's probably a bit of a cliche to say that the consumer journey has changed quite a lot, but it's really important to point out that it has because it makes marketing much more difficult. So how complex is, the, is generally the, the shopper journey today? And how has it changed recently, Sharon? Gosh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the shopper journey is definitely more complex for a number of reasons. Firstly, there's just so many more touch points available now that aim to impact the shopper. And I think people themselves have become much more comfortable with these channels and touch points. Also, uh, many consumers now opt themselves into engaging with certain touch points. So people are actively signing up to get the latest information on brands, get early access to new product launches and get discounts. And there's been, a, there's been an explosion of use of social media platforms. So if you think about it, there's now roughly 1 billion active users of Instagram. Mm. However, I do think that technology has made the process of navigating touch points much easier in many ways. So if you think about the fact that nine in every 10 people in Ireland own a smartphone, this gives people instant access to e-commerce sites and social media platforms, pretty much from the comfort of their own home when they're out on the go, wherever. Um, you know, I myself, I expect every week to get exposure to lots of different messages through newsletters, SMS, you know, the weekly offers on wine or meats from Supervalue. I always get those on a Thursday and I'm expecting them. And I expect to see sponsored ads for beauty and fashion being served out to me on social media platforms or popping up when I search the internet. And all of this is on top of the more traditional media channels. So there's much more two-way interaction. The journey is increasingly non-linear. Um, you know, if you think about it, people will go forward, get to a certain point, and then we go back, may, maybe go back in that process on that journey as they seek recommendations and look to see what others are buying. So much more complex, but definitely at points in, enabled by technology. Mm. Um, so definite changes there. 
Yeah, and, and your article kind of points to that because the consumer journey has become more complex. You know, it's really important that you stand out along that that shopper journey. So I'm going to, the article covers this, which I really like about the article. It kind of gets into practical examples because that's the way my brain works. So the first thing that you talk about, you, you write to talk about is the, the importance of like theatre and excitement. So yeah, it's funny sometimes when we think about, you know, people talking about things that have changed and like that the high street will be dead because people just buy online. And I think... Sometimes people forget that actually, that, you know, shopping is an experience itself. It's not just a functional thing that we we transfer ownership of goods from from seller to buyer. People actually like it. Um, so now it's really hard to replicate that experience online. But um, one of the things this came up before on the podcast, maybe I think it was last year. One of the things that um, I'm always amazed at, like when you think about the effort that a company puts into design the store. So they'll map it out. They'll you know what way they want you to walk in, how they design the store, the layout, the floor plan, how they want to walk you through that, and what the staff are dress like the color the lighting the sound the music the ambience the smell it is yeah. it's incredible yeah. the decoration and then when i'm talking to clients and i look at some of their websites it's absolutely rubbish like and saying and, and i know you can't spend the same amount of time like think about your website but actually it does warrant thinking about your digital um you know user experience how you how you want to navigate people through your website what it looks like i just think clients don't do they don't really do enough of that certainly i don't i don't think they do um so that is something you touched on in, in your article. So can you give me a couple of examples of any brands or retailers who you think have done this quite well? Yeah, gosh, I actually think there's some amazing examples of Irish brands that have really thought about the online or digital experience. Um, as I mentioned in the article, the Kilkenny Shop have launched a virtual store within their website. And through the use of augmented reality, they, it actually allows the shopper online to walk the shop floor, see the products on shelf and click through to get more information about a product and ideally add it to the cart from within that website. Um, To me, this marks great sensory marketing because sensory marketing is so important because the fact that the fact that people can see the, the products on the shelf beautifully displayed from within that website is a real step forward. Now, it's interesting that I actually think many beauty brands really upped their game during COVID um, in terms of their online presence and what their their websites uh, delivered. And if you think about it for months, we were physically unable to get into many stores and try out beauty and make Mm. a product. So the likes of Charlotte Tilbury and actually from an Irish perspective, um, Sculpted by Amy, I think that that brand has done an absolutely fantastic job alongside the website. They had masterclasses, videos, tutorials, and they were working with influencers to review and give their own views around the products. But once you got within the site, very easy to navigate. Mm. I I think that some brands out there um, have really thought outside of the box in terms of theatre and excitement. There's a lovely Irish brand, an award-winning Irish business from from Wexford called Bean & Goose, And they offer a a chocolate tasting club subscription. So you can go online, subscribe up to this. And this offers, in effect, a different bar from their Bean Lab every month that goes out to those who subscribe to their tasting club. Now, this bar is provided exclusive to those who sign up. So they're using their website to both inform and entice you. Mm. And, you know, having a look the other day, a November's Bean Lab bar, for example, is pumpkin, pecan and milk chocolate. Very easy to go on onto that website, very easy to get a sense of what the, the, the chocolate is like mm-hmm. and very easy to convert to, to to purchase afterwards. Yeah, that's a great example. I also I love the, uh, the Kilkenny example because 
that idea of really thinking about the online experience, but actually, and I think you mentioned this in the article, the online experience can often act as a magnet in that case for the Kilkenny shop to bring people in store um, if it's done well. So uh, I think that's here's a really smart example um, and a great example of what brands could be doing. Now, both those, a lot of those examples and a lot of the, the effort is going to be like they're about a brand website. But like we talked earlier on, there's so many touch points along the shopper journey. So I know it's much harder because you're not in control. You're in control of your website. But is it important to look to create theatre or to stand out in other channels, like not just your own website? I know the thing I say to clients is good isn't good enough. There's no point in being brilliant on your website and then being like falling down, being terrible yeah. in, in all the other touch points. So it's easier because you control your website. But is it important and should brands be thinking about, you know, how they entertain and how they are theatrical and engage people off their own website in terms of maybe it's influencers or social? Yeah, I actually think, um, I think a number of grocery brands such as Super Value and Lidl were really good during lockdown, actually, in terms of engaging people on um, on social media platforms. If you look at Lidl, they collaborated with the Gastro Gaze and I was following these guys on Instagram. And what I loved about them was that they used to run a series of um, cocktail masterclasses. But quite ingeniously, the guys would, would give you the ingredients that you needed in advance and encourage you to go into Lidl to pick up those ingredients. And then whether it was a Friday or a Saturday night to actually participate in the masterclass with them. And then ultimately, once you've made the cocktail yourself, to share about that experience on on social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great way of thinking beyond just your website to actually get theatre and excitement and engagement. Mm. Um, Another brand I think that did a fantastic job over lockdown in using a sort of an omni-channel approach was Carrick Dunn. So obviously they're selling um, fashion, they're selling jewellery and, and houseware products. And they really utilise the power of social media platforms because not only did they reach out to influencers, but they reach out to just people who follow them on Instagram, people of all shapes and sizes. And they used Instagram as a real platform um, to show their range of dresses on lots of different people, You know, whether you were a size 10 or a size 16 or 18, whatever that may be. Um, and that was a really clever way, particularly when people couldn't actually get into stores themselves to try mm. things on to see what they might look like because they had so many people actually um, showcasing the products on their behalf. And I think, you know, that particular brand, very clever at looking at, you know, holistically um, engaging with people. They might pop up on Ireland AM for a fashion section. They might pop up for, on a feature in a magazine editorial and then obviously each of those, I think they've nearly 40 stores, each of those near 40 stores acts as a physical showcase for their, their product range. So loads of examples there. Jim and Coffee, and um, another great Irish brand, really active in, in what they did is they've created a community around their brand. So newsletters, they've just launched a new app and they have a community of followers where they're giving advice to them and getting people to share themselves as they're getting active in mm-hmm. their population. Their Some lovely examples there. Mm. Um, I had um, earlier on I was it this year was it last year I can't remember I was talking to Pauline Brown from Dixon's Carphone Group and this idea of you know blending old with new and kind of physicality of store with convenience of digital they, the really nice thing and um, one of the innovations they had was um, you know when you think about white goods and electrical goods People kind of want to see them. You can look at the website, they're out of context. You don't know how actually big it is and what it looks like versus something else. You want to ask questions about it. So they really simple thing. Some of the stuff you talked about there, they were doing FaceTime calls with a with an in-store expert. So you actually go on from the comfort of your home. You can talk to the guy or girl in store. They can show you what it looks like. They can walk around the store. They can show it to you in situ with something else. And they can you can ask as many questions. Just a really yeah. smart idea about how 
they've blended the kind of the, the human touch with the with the kind of I suppose the, the convenience of digital, and that, that kind of brings me on to my next point. This idea of blending old and new. Um, I think retailers particularly retailers have always been pretty good. Like the good ones, some of them don't really care, but the good ones, the ones who care the premium brands or the, the, have always been good at doing experience in stores, like Nike flagship stores and Adidas flagship stores. Like, why would anyone go to a Nike store and buy a pair of runners? You can buy them in Sports Direct probably cheaper. Well, it's because it's the experience. And I think Steve Jobs famously understood that about Apple. You know, going to the store was as much of the experience. So I think some brands have done it really well. And you mentioned Nike in your article about how they've blended kind of digital and physical experience in store now in the post-pandemic era. And I love a compound word, so I, I learned a new compound word in this one, fidgetal. So um, what were they doing exactly and w- what are others doing? And do you think this is definitely, well, I, I guess you do think it is, but like, tell me why it's the way forward. Yeah, well, firstly, it's it's probably worthwhile explaining what we mean by fidgetal. Um, it's a hard one to, to actually pronounce. It is. Let <laughs> me explain, but Digital is the concept of using technology, I suppose, to bridge the digital world with the physical world in order to provide a unique and interactive experience for the user. Now, the best way uh, to, to sort of explain that is probably to give some examples. So I mentioned Nike, the Nike flagship store in Paris in the article. So even before the House of Innovation, which is what this flagship store in Paris was no, is known as, even before it opened, Nike was sparking interest amongst young people in Paris. In effect, they created a treasure hunt and they used augmented reality for it. So they placed lots of QR codes at key locations around the city so consumers could scan and get a glimpse into what lay ahead with the launch of the new store. They had loads of giveaways for basketball tickets and the latest running shoes. And then once inside the store, for Nike, it's about inspiring the audience. And technology really plays a key role in doing that through the use of augmented reality. So you can take a particular pair of runners in that store and personalize them to your color choice and specification using digital technology. Now, you don't even have to go as far as Paris to get some really good examples of this. Another amazing and pretty new example in this space is for the jewellery brand Chupi. Mm-hmm. So Chupi, um, which is very much heirloom jewellery, has just launched a new virtual try-on tool. It's a mobile-only app, and it literally, it, it's absolutely brilliant. It allows you to go and take a photo of your hand on your phone and then literally choose a ring from the Chupi range, position the ring on your finger. I think you can stack up to about five rings. And with all of this, very much personalizing it, you can edit the metal, the brand size, band size, everything within that. And the beauty of something this is that it's very visual um, and people buy with their eyes Mm -hmm. and it allows people to actually time with the brand in their own time. So there's no pressure, there's no salesperson staring at you. And if you like what you see, it's sort of nudging you further along Mm -hmm. that shopper journey in the direction of the Chupi brand. And like, I think it's, it's, it's pretty important to say that, you know, sometimes there are incidences where we would have traditionally said, I'd only ever go into a store to buy something uh, in, in particular. But if you go on to another good example, the Smart Buy Glasses website, this is a great example. Have you ever heard of that, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. So they're bringing the store into your home through the mm-hmm. use of technology. So there was a time if you wanted to find the right pair of glasses that was going to suit you, you had to visit the opticians, you had to spend time trying on all the glasses. But actually through technology, again, they'll take a photo of your face, you know, from the comfort of your own home, assess your shape, your face shape, and give you suggestions on which glass frames are actually going to best suit your particular face shape. 
And look, there was a point in time where for such an investor purchase like glasses or indeed for, for jewellery, you wouldn't dream of purchasing without mm. physically trying them on. Yeah, it gives you more options. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great because quite uncomfortable standing there. Well, I when I'm trying on glass before, I just hated it. Your mum was standing over my shoulder. He's she's telling me yeah. he, the ones he was picking out me. I didn't like them, and I didn't know how to tell him. I was like, I don't like those ones. He's like, well, they're the ones that suit you. I said, like, I don't like them. So it's, it was kind of <laughs> awkward. So that if they could just do your eye test online now, it'd be fantastic. You don't have to bring it up. Um, you also talked about the importance of convenient, seamless, and personalized shopping experience. I noticed a lot in that, um, and it's something that we talk about quite a lot to clients. You know, all those things are really important. So, can you give anyone listening a sense of what you mean by that in a few examples? Um, I suppose, in simple terms, the easier that we make it for shoppers to engage with their brands, the more likely they are to convert to purchase and actually become loyal loyal customers. So you've really got to make that journey along the path to purchase as easy and as seamless as possible. And really importantly, you've got to remove barriers to purchase, things that will stop people on their path. Now, a lovely example uh, of this would be Marks and Spencers. So you spot an item from M&S on an influencer. So I'm, I'm scrolling through um, on Instagram and I see a jumper, a nice jumper, and on a particular uh, influencer. And if it's an affiliated ad with pretty much a simple swipe up, you can website directly onto the page of the item. So you're not going in and having to navigate and find things. You're right through to the page that you were looking for. And this is nudging you forward on that purchase journey. If then you decided maybe I want to try the item on myself or I need the item in a hurry, M&S make it really easy for you to find stores that stock the item, um, your item, your particular item and size on So that website will tell you both where the item is available, but also how many of the items are still there. So mm. if you're deciding, am I going to go to Dundrum or pop into uh, into town to, to get the, the, the item, you can say, well, you know, I might have two of, the, of it in one store, but, you know, but eight or nine of them in another, that's where I'll, I'll head. And even when it comes to deliveries online, home delivery is free with orders over 50 euro. You can choose click and collect. And there's a 35 day free returns policy. So what they're doing here in this example is they're looking at potential issues that become a barrier to purchase. Mm. And ultimately, they're creating shopper solutions to overcome this, this barrier. And this becomes even more personalized when the type of items that, that are being remarketed to you on m because, you know, once I'm in and I'm engaging with m and I start to see sponsored ads coming at me. But there are ads for things that, that I'm interested in knowing more about in the first place because they're very much targeted to me. Yeah, great examples. And and it sounds, when it's done well, it's kind of, it seems effortless, but it's, it's anything but effortless. Um, Claire, we're going to come to you in a minute. I hope you're, you're still awake there. I'll come to you in a second. I'm just going to ask Sharon one more question here because I just want to lead on from that. Um. I know this, and one of the things that I've experienced firsthand, because we do a lot of work, work in lots of different categories, but shopper expectations are just in unbelievably, but sometimes unrealistically high. We are, we are definitely living in an era of an expectation economy. So the best experience wins, and what consumers are doing, they're holding everybody accountable to whoever provides the best service. So, you know, even I feel sorry sometimes for Irish brands. So you, you think about RTE, um, my experience of Netflix and even SkyQ, I now... That's the kind of standard I hold RTE to. So RTE's recommendation engine, their player, the functionality, and even their content. I now expect that to be as good and as slick an experience as Netflix, which is tough. And you mentioned fashion there. You think about Amazon or even closer to home, ASOS. Like table stakes now for fashion, like they all offer good prices, mostly all free delivery, um, now free returns. They're removing all those barriers, as you talked about. It's pretty quick. You can get stuff on Amazon in a couple of days. I was thinking... How on earth do you compete with that if you're an Irish retailer? Like, what can you actually do? But you have a couple of examples um, in the art, and you talked about how 
brands can kind of you know compete with with these people i think you talked you talked about um sweaty betty which is a brand that i'd never heard of so can you talk to me a little bit about this area of trying to put some of the things they've done or other brands have done about trying to remove those barriers and those frictions gosh well sweaty betty um obviously are a leisure wear brand and they you know going back to strategic principles i talked about earlier they understand so it's, it's about knowing your target market understanding their needs their problems etc and they understand the consumer really really well and they understand what consumers want in leggings so things like a side pocket extra support leggings that fit aren't too you know things that aren't too long or too short so you know for people purchasing leggings online there could be a huge fear in making a purchase without actually trying the leggings on and that could be a real barrier to purchase. Mm. But to, to counteract this, Sweaty Betty, because they're, they're not inexpensive, you know, you can pay in excess of 100 euro per, per, per pair of leggings. They introduce the leggings test. And what that does is it allows consumers to personalize when they do this test, the type of leggings that are ideal to them. So based on their size, their height, what preferred features they, they'd like to see in leggings and hangups they have. And it basically serves them back a set of leggings. So, you know, three pairs of leggings once you've done the test that tell you, you know, these are what we think are your ideal leggings based on what your personalized preferences are. So they've removed all those barriers and then served you a solution that is fit for purpose for you. They, they, they very cleverly then do so by by also giving you a um you know a coupon once you sign up to their email newsletter you've got a coupon then to use your your costs on that first go so very much re- removing the and reducing the barriers I also mentioned sculpted by Amy or Yaron that's a great example again of for seeing and removing barriers when it comes to makeup so you know a big fear that people will have with a makeup brand is that you if you wanted to switch brands you might be able to get the new brand in the same color. Mm. But what they've done is they've color matched all of the main competitor brands. So it becomes much easier for shoppers to switch over to their brand without that fear factor. And you can do this from the comfort of your couch without having ever entered a store. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's great. Really nice examples there of how we remove friction. You also talked about the evolving because that brick and mortar stores, like it's a, it's always kind of talking about the death. It's greatly exaggerated, but you talked about how these will have to evolve. And Claire, I'm going to come to you in this. Um, what we tend to do is we try and take old behaviours and then kind of digitise them. So I know even in the article, you know, doing this kind of the opposite way around, I think removing friction is something that we talk about digitally. We that's we tend to talk about that quite a lot. But actually, you think about it, and I think we, you mentioned this in the article, IKEA even providing pencils and measuring tapes removes friction. So so I like the idea of taking, um, you know, this removing friction goes two ways. So, but Claire, in terms of reducing friction, it's it's often talked about in behavioural science, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And and there's been a lot of research on this, particularly in terms of online shopping. And uh, we find really what we find is that you actually stand to gain a lot more sometimes simply by removing or reducing friction than by mm-hmm. adding something to an experience. And uh, that's particularly the case in e-commerce. But uh, the principles are exactly the same in bricks and mortar stores. I had an experience recently, just to give you an example, where uh, I was given a gift card as a reward for a purchase, which was a really lovely idea. And I really appreciated it. But when it actually came to claiming the gift card, uh, the process was very heavy, very onerous. It took a lot of time. I had to jump through lots of hoops. And as I was going through this process, then I was finding actually there are a lot of restrictions. I, I can only use it in certain places, in certain ways. So that frustration uh, basically chipped away at the positive effect of getting the gift card in the first place. Mm. 
So I, I think essentially the, the, the best thing that we can do if we're a retailer or a brand is really try to walk through the shopper experience from their perspective, mm. literally try to walk through it in their shoes and identify where there are points of friction. And then ask yourself, well, is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do to remove this or to reduce it? Because the name of the game is really trying to make the whole experience as smooth as yeah. possible. And a certain amount of friction you see has been added in because of the pandemic. You know, people are having to remember to wear masks, sanitize, yeah. keep a, a social distance. So there are already friction points in the system. So really, it would help a lot then for shoppers if retailers and brands found ways to smooth the process out as much as possible. Yeah, I always think we're becoming like, you know, I pay for everything with my Apple Watch now. And then like it has removed friction. But then I think, was it so much hassle to take my card out of my wallet? It seems like it's like I just wouldn't think of doing it now but like I think it's a great point looking really nice point about looking at walking through the journey in the consumer shoes and looking at any kind of friction points along that journey and seeing how can we reduce or remove or reduce even some of the friction Um, thinking about just from behavioural science point of view some of the behaviours and demand that's caused by COVID like some of the things that we've seen so we've seen a huge rise in click and collect and people just not wanting to go into store they just want to get there get their stuff and take it away are those temporary things do you think or have they you know, I think it's 66 days to form a new habit or something like that so are these behaviours going to stick or will we you know do you see do you see kind of reverting back to, to what was the old normal as we go forward well, I think it's a really interesting question. And that's the question that's on everybody's mind at the moment. I think, as I was saying earlier, you know, when you look at the pandemic, it's been the biggest disruption mm. to what we used to call normal uh, that we've ever experienced. And at the beginning, it was remarkable that people were able to adapt their behavior so quickly and start to follow new behaviors that they'd never followed yeah. before. And businesses as well really pivoted. I mean, one example I really like is uh, neighborfood.ie, which was set up basically to match local food producers to local consumers. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time when, apart from essential retail, everything else was closed. So people that would have gone to farmers markets, for example, they couldn't do that anymore because the farmers markets were closed. Yeah. So what Neighborfood did was it, it made it possible for people to order online, pay online, choose from whatever local produce they wanted. And then producers would deliver it. Consumers would collect it. They didn't meet. Mm. It was very seamless. And it was a real lifesaver for small local food producers around the country at the time. So that's an example of how businesses adapted. But in terms of, as you say, it takes a certain amount of time to form a habit. We have had this interruption, let's say, for 18 months now. And that's a very yeah. long time. So it's been plenty of time to form new habits and to embed those habits, really. Mm. Um, and I think although we're going back to the things that we have missed, at the same time, I do think some of those behaviours will stick. I don't think it'll be quite as black and white as that we'll completely stop doing some things and mm. we'll restart doing others as we would have pre-pandemic. I think we're going to end up with more of a, a hybrid situation, almost like we are in, in workplace. Everything's hybrid. Everything Hybrid families, yeah. quality time with kids. Everything's hybrid. We're gonna, everything, cars are hybrid. Life is hybrid. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, because if you imagine, for example, if you imagine um, a couple that might have gone out to the pub once every week pre-COVID down to the local for a drink, will they do that now? Well, mm. they may well go out for a drink in the same place, but they may not go quite as often yeah. because they may, for example, decide that once every second week that they'll stay in instead because they became used to this night in, yeah. the takeaway, the bottle of wine and so on. 
So from the perspective of the pub, yeah. that means that they'll have to work harder to encourage people to to come back as often. Yeah. And to Claire's point on that, Dave, you know, people have invested in um, entertaining at home. So having, you know, having put that investment into that now, they want to get use out of that investment, you know, the TV, mm. um, you know, the, the cocktail making equipment, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you you start to see some of those habits remain, maybe not as much as before, but definitely remaining. Yeah, I think when people, yeah, because you stayed in and you had to stay in, but then actually well, one of the big differences I noticed was, I said, well, I went out for pints with the lads I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and then I was shocked at the bill at the end of it because we had a little bit of food, a few pints, and it just, I was like, well, Jesus, like that would have lasted me two weeks of of, of, <laughs> of home alcohol consumption. Um, just on brick and mortar, sorry, Sean, you, you said in the article that uh, ultimately brick and mortar and online touch points shouldn't compete. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, look, the aim of, of brands and retailers should be to nudge consumers along that path to purchase using touch points until they convert to sale. And the better and the more effective the experience along the way, the more likely those shoppers are to convert to purchase and ultimately actually to develop loyalty for the brand or, and or the retailer. And I, I believe it's up to brands to really ensure that that online and offline experience, that they support each other instead of competing with each other. So you should never walk into a store and feel like the in-store experience is vastly different to engaging with that brand or retailer when you visit their website. I do think that in future, though, you're going to see increasingly that the role of the physical store is changing. The stores will provide facilities for purchase, but more and more you're going to see them act as points for fulfillment and points for experience. And as a brand or a retailer, you've got to be comfortable that a shopper may visit at your store and maybe get a physical feel for an item, even if they actually don't intend to make the purchase of that item from the store itself. Mm, yeah, and that's just that's just the world we live in. Um, yeah. Claire, just going to come back to you for a second. So, like, we hear this all the time, this narrative, like, you know, video is going to kill the radio star, supermarket is going to kill local shops, malls are going to kill the high streets, online is going to kill the malls. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things I think that happened during the pandemic was, again, it was forced because we, we had um, travel restrictions, but there was a... a a return to local. So, I, you know, do you think that from a behaviour point of view, like either two things that happened, we did it because we had to and we'll regress to the mean again because it was simply born out of necessity through the travel restrictions. But actually, my sense is that there was a bit of a, a, a reawakening of the benefits of local and shopping local. Yeah, it may cost a bit more money, but there's definitely, um, you know, the benefit of that is a much more personalised shopping experience. So, do you think that that has, has been, that reawakening is something that people will value more and will continue to do? Or will we just stop supporting the high street, the local shop again, now that we can buy everything and travel wherever we want to buy online? Oh, to be honest, you know, I think there has been a genuine reawakening of uh, the benefits of shopping locally. Mm. And lockdown was the catalyst. Um, but really, the appreciation of local is genuine. And that's because local businesses delivered, you know, they delivered yeah. excellent quality, they delivered a personal service and a personal touch. And all of that was very much appreciated. Um, I think as well that with many of us now opting for hybrid working, we are actually going to spend more time in our communities than yeah. we would have pre-COVID. Not as much as during lockdown, but still more than we would have pre-COVID. So I do think that's a benefit for local businesses. However, I wouldn't be complacent either. And the reason I say that is because we're entering a, a period of inflation. We've got a lot more competition now because people have more choice. You know, they can shop from uh, global, national, local. And the larger the business, the more able they will be to compete 
in an inflationary environment. So I do think that it's it's really important, especially over the next, say, three months between now and Christmas, mm. that businesses basically do two things. You know, find a way to remind people of their, their local credentials and keep offering that personal service. And reminding people of their their local credentials, it doesn't have to be in your face or yeah. loud or, or shouty. You know, it could be quite subtle. It could be displaying images of the local community, running little local competitions, mm. um, displaying local colors. There are lots of nice ways. One way I think actually is, is that's really important is if a local business buys from other local suppliers, that they let their shoppers know. Right, yeah, yeah. Because often shoppers won't realize that. And and there is this interdependency. And it's really impressive to me if a local business buys from other suppliers mm. locally. I realize then that my money is, is essentially going to support more than one local business. And that's a really good feeling. Yeah. And I guess it's a great point because, I mean, if the local business is asking me to support local, then I expect them to support local as well. Um, so it's a great yeah. point. One of the, we talked a little bit about fashion and Claire, I'll come to you in a second on this because, because we get into behavioral science here, but Sharon, I'm going to start with you. Like everything is disposable now. We, we live in throwaway culture. That's just the way it is, particularly in fast fashion now. And I, I read all the time that consumers, they want to be more responsible. They want to be more sustainable and they will continue. They will increasingly support retailers who do likewise. But then when you look like what people say and what they do, when you look at the sales in cheap clothing, if you look at the amount of stuff that just gets thrown away, that gets binned instead of, you know, we don't buy secondhand, we don't fix anything. So despite what we actually say, I wonder, like, do we really care? And do, I wondered, if, like, I know, you know, when you're asked from focus groups, you say, oh, yeah, no, I want to do, I'm definitely going to do this. And then you don't do it. You don't do that. It's like good for me versus good for everyone else. So is this just kind of people paying lip service to this or are we going to see some changes in this area? Now, I know there's, look, there's been loads of brands that have done lots of really good stuff. I know IKEA have done a few things around pre-loved furniture, which I think is lovely. It's brilliant. And I actually heard, I think it was two weeks ago, Penny's plan to only use recycled or responsibly sourced materials by 2030. Um, and here's the magic bit. They're going to continue. They're going to do that without pushing the cost up to consumers somehow. So I don't know how that's going to happen. But do you think Sharon Browns are doing enough here? And do you think we're, is this a fad or is this something that we? It, it's here to stay and brand, more brands are going to lead into whether they like it or not? Yeah, well, the answer I think is that currently brands aren't doing enough, but brands are definitely leaning more into this space. And 100%, I think you'll see brands making sustainability much more of a focus going forward. I quoted Alan Joe, CEO of Unilever in the article, who said any company that wants to stay relevant in the future has got to think about sustainable behavior. But I do think at the moment that both brands and retailers are confused as to how to adopt more sustainable behavior. I think often the default with many is to assume that sustainable retailing is about climate control, mm -hmm. when really it's just about so much more than that. Claire and I are actually, we're looking at this topic at, at the moment as a retail project. And, you know, what we're seeing is there's a big fear factor out there amongst businesses that if you can't do sustainability 100% right, then you're best to keep your head under the parapet yeah. for fear of scrutiny. And, and I think businesses themselves need to be guided in practical terms about how to adopt more sustainable practices the reality is consumers have clear needs around sustainability. So it's going to be up to brands and retail partners to create solutions that deliver against those needs. Yeah, it's really interesting. Claire, I'm going to come to you. I'm not sold on what people say in service, to be honest with you. And you'll know this more than me. So like behavioural science taught us that what we say and what we do was very, very different. Like I'm still flabbergasted when I look back at the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal in 2016. They're mm -hmm. caught with all that emissions scandal. 
And then you look, okay, well, in, in, the, in the climate that we live in and, and we hold brands to a higher standard, well, they're going to be in for a tough time. No, what happens? Sales increase every single year up until 2020 where the whole car market collapsed. So it seems to be that like, despite all our huff and puff and bluster about, you know, do good and we expect brands to do good, we, we're very forgiven and very forgetful about these type of scandals when it suits us. When we say, well, I need a, a new Volkswagen, I need a new car, Volkswagen are good cars, they're cheap. Yeah, I know they caught with that, but sure, who cares? I need a car. So Claire, what's going on here? If people really care about these societal issues and they, they expect brands to be for good, well, then why do their sales go up? Why don't we punish brands by not buying them? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting and it, it can be quite confusing to people when you see those two conflicting things. On the one hand, people saying, oh, yes, this is very important. And and then in, in the moment of truth, as we call it, then they may choose something completely different. So what's going on is we basically have two ways of thinking. We have what's called system one thinking, which is very fast, very intuitive, um, not all that reflective, uh, very much where we see automatic behavior. And then we have system two, which is quite different, which is much slower, much more deliberate, much more considered, much more reflective. So we reserve system two because it takes a little bit more mental effort for really considering things. So what happens is if you ask people in a survey, um, you know, what do you think about sustainability or climate change? They'll say, well, yes, of course, it's a really yeah. big issue. Of course, we should do what we can, of course, I would buy from a company that are responsible. But then when they're in everyday business mode, when they're shopping for groceries, for example, they're back into yeah. system thinking, which is much more automatic, much more about the usual habits. So it's mm. not top of mind in that moment um, that they should pick a sustainable option. So I think at a broad level, we've we've done the work for system two. There isn't anyone in Ireland now that doesn't realize that sustainability is important, climate change is a big issue. It's less about awareness and whether or not it's important. It's much more about making it easy for people to choose the right option yeah. while they're in system one mode. And there are ways the science can help with that, you know, whether it's by getting the communication right or putting cues in the environment that will nudge people in the right direction. But ultimately, any brand or any retailer should really be trying to make the right choice the easiest choice. Mm. It shouldn't take a lot of mental effort on the part of the shopper to decipher which is the most sustainable option, where can I find it? It should be the default, ideally. Yeah. So that's really what we need to work to. And, you know, there is goodwill out there. I do really believe that at the end of the day, people do want to do the right thing. They just need that that little bit of support. Yeah. Yeah. So I think about this and I go like, I think sometimes we, we place all pressure onto, onto the retail and the brand. I think we're quite forgiven in consumers generally. So like the burden seems to lie with all the retailers to be sustainable. Yet, you think about the market dictates. So if everyone cared so much, they simply just wouldn't buy those products where they, they don't know how a t-shirt got onto a rack. I mean, if you're buying a t-shirt for four, three quid, someone somewhere is getting paid below minimum wage. You can't, it can't appear on a, on a rack for three quid. So it, should we blame the retailers? Are, are retailers not just, you know, they're not creating the demand, they're simply supplying it. So what do you, do you think we're too forgiving to consumers? Like, because the consumers forget quickly, as I said, about Dieselgate and all. Are we, do we place too much pressure on retailers? I don't think so. I do think uh, there's an element of quid pro quo here. You know, if a shopper understands that a retailer or a brand has met them halfway, yeah. they're going to be very likely to to uh, do their bit. You know, it's called reciprocity. It's it's a little bit of you scratch my back, I'll scratch okay. yours. And and that, you know, evidence shows that if a company can can do that, can explain 
look, this is what we're doing and we've invested to do this and we're happy to do it, but all we need is for you to do X, you know, and that's a better way to get there, I think. Right. Okay. And we started off early on saying that the consumer journey has become really, really complicated today. So Claire, where do you see the biggest gaps um, or let's say opportunities for Irish retailers? Uh, Well, you know, I think there's a really big opportunity to, to simplify things. So we talk in behavioral science about cognitive load. So what that's about is it's essentially the stuff that we've going on in our minds at any one moment in time. And what's interesting is that there's a limit to how much we can process. So we typically we can handle two to three pieces of information at a time if we're trying to process it or make sense of it. So it might be tempting if you're a brand or a retailer, you know, to increase choice, put lots of choice out there, share lots of interesting information. But especially given what I was saying earlier about the added complexity now because of COVID, Mm. that might effectively mean you're adding to a shopper's cognitive load Mm. and that can put pressure on them. So actually, there's a lot more to be gained by simplifying, by stripping away. And there's three things really to do. One is simplifying any information, just giving people what they need to make the decision or the choice. The second thing is organizing the choice in a way that helps them manage it. Mm. So we call that choice architecture. And then the third thing is about removing distractions. And it's amazing. These these things really do add up. And if retailers and brands can do that for shoppers, it will really help shoppers get the headspace that they need to to browse, to, to shop. They'll probably shop more if that's the kind of environment that they're shopping in. Yeah. It's a great point. Is that that's that kind of paradox of choice? I think the books call it decision yes. paralysis when you're forced with too many too many choices. We think choice is a good thing, and it is a good thing. But when it, when yeah. it becomes overwhelming, it it just causes a paralysis of of choice. So, yeah, yeah. A really good point, Sharon. I, I just want to like when we we've talked about quite a lot here, and like if you're listening to this and you're you're an Irish retailer and you've got stores and websites and social and all the stuff going on, it can be quite overwhelming in terms of the things you need to do. So, what do you think are well, let's call it quick wins or easy wins. What do you think are table stakes? What do we think if you're listening now going, well, I, I really need to get a handle on, you know, in-store, my website, everything I'm doing, all my touch points. What are the, the efforts, what the minimum table stakes that you think retailers should look at? And what are the things you say, if, you, if you're kind of okay at those things, what are the next things to look at? What's looming on the horizon? To my earlier point, I think there's, you've got to provide great end-to-end shopper experience. So you've got to map out what that shopper experience looks like right throughout that consumer behavior life cycle. So providing more transparency for the shopper around information. So what stocks of a particular product are available when the product's due for delivery, transparency around the origins of products and about what other customers have thought about the products when they've tried them. And you've got to make sure that in that life cycle that you're looking at things right through to the very end. So, you know, difficulty, for example, in engaging with a retailer, if an order's gotten lost or it needs to be returned, that impacts the shopper's appetite to return to the retailer again. So really, really important to make sure that you're looking at that full cycle. I also think that retailers now really need to embrace the consumer's desire to be inspired. So using the likes of video content to tell their stories Mm -hmm. and showcase their brands. In terms of what's looming, I think businesses need to be much clearer about what their unique selling or value proposition is. They've got to be clear about what the combined elements to their offering actually are to make them stand out. 
I think technology has really opened the door for retailers to play in a worldwide stage. So you can be a small business now in the West of Ireland, but with the right marketing tools um, you know, and the right USP, you can tap into a global market of consumers mm. and shoppers. But that works both ways, Dave, because retailers now need to expect that the com- competitive set out there is much wider than before. I also think that going forward, brands and retailers really need to think about how they authentically align values and purpose with consumers, shoppers, and uh, consumer and shopper needs. Yeah. Okay. Great. We we've we've covered a lot there, and um, so we're nearly out of time. But just for the last minute, Sharon, if anyone's listening, let's start with you. Tell, tell me a little bit about your business, your company. Like how do you work? Do you work directly with clients? Are you working with agencies? If anyone's listening, like give them, give me the thirty second pitch in terms of what you do. If anyone's <laughs> listening, you might drum up a bit of business. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I run a consumer shopper and retail marketing consultancy, Think Plan Do, and my expertise is in helping businesses translate retail trends and consumer and shopper behaviours into strategic plans. In terms of who I'd work with, it's suppliers, it's retailers and agencies, but it's it's working on projects to develop strategies for growth. I'll often help brands and businesses to create their unique value proposition and strategically devise marketing activities to actually impact consumer and shopper behaviour. Also, um, I offer training workshops on category shopper marketing and retail strategy. That's me. Right. Sounds good. Uh, Claire, I'm fascinated by behavioral science. I I just, I think people are odd. People are mad. I just can't (laughs) figure them out. If I could figure them out, like, you know, I think, you know, we we talk about consumer understanding and um, Sir John Hegarty says, we don't have consumer understanding. We have consumer knowledge. So give me a little elevator pitch about your business. What do you do? How do, how do you work with people? Are you working with clients? What, what type of things do you do? So uh, I run BehaviorWise, which is a behavioral insight and behavioral science consultancy. And essentially, when you think about it, so much of what we do in marketing is about understanding what's driving behavior or anticipating future behavior or understanding how to change it. So we work across all of those areas. Uh, We carry out research. uh, We provide training. We offer a range of tools and techniques to help with behavior change. And all of those are underpinned by the science. And then we work across a lot of different areas. So just recently, we've done a lot of work in food and drink. Uh, we've also worked on shopping behavior. Okay. Um, Sharon and I are working on sustainability, as she mentioned earlier. We've done some work on diversity and inclusion and on financial behavior. So there's a whole breadth of areas that we cover. And we work with both agencies and with uh, retailers and with manufacturers right. right across the board. All right. Sounds like you're busy. If anyone's listening, they want to get in touch, Claire, where can they find you? Where can they go? What's the website and how do they reach out? Uh, so the website is www.behaviorwise.ie and uh, you can contact me at claire at behaviorwise.ie. So you can either go to the website or mm-hmm. email me directly and I'd be delighted to hear from you. Okay, great. Sharon, same question. If anyone's listening saying, I need to get in touch with Sharon, where do they find out? Where can they have a nosy around? What's your website and how can they, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, easiest thing to do, check out the website www.tpdconsulting.ie and get in touch from there or alternatively get in touch e- even through LinkedIn and uh, and DM me then. Cool, or great. That's on site. Excellent, right. Um, that's it. We are out of time. That's all she wrote. Thanks for joining me today, Sharon. And thanks for joining me today, Claire. Great. It was great to have you. A big thanks also to Andrea on Sound and Kira in Marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, follow us, tell your colleagues, listen back to some of the other great episodes. If you didn't, tell somebody you don't like, but just tell somebody. You'll find all our episodes by simply typing Inside Marketing Irish Times into your search engine of choice. So until next time, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast. 
brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.